The right to choose? Two federal judges split, throwing the future of a key abortion medication into question. The Biden administration should ignore this ruling. How will the FDA respond? Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra and Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez next. And political retribution. Tennessee Republicans expel two Democrats over their gun reform protest during session. They think that the issue's over. We'll see you on Monday. Another flashpoint in the guns debate. Uvalde Congressman Tony Gonzalez will join me. Plus, Ultra MAGA, a defiant former president, vows to fight charges against him as other ongoing probes accelerate. How are Republican voters responding? Do not go to the gutter. Avoid it. It turns off the voters. Hello, I'm Dana Bash in Washington, where the state of our union is wondering what doesn't become politicized these days. We just closed out an especially bitter and divisive week in American politics. On Tuesday, former President Donald Trump was indicted in New York and is bowing vengeance, as it appears possible the case could go to trial months before the presidential election. On Thursday, two Tennessee state lawmakers were expelled by Republicans for protesting in favor of gun restrictions following a mass shooting in a Nashville elementary school. And on Friday, two federal judges split over the future of the medication abortion drug Mifepristone. A judge in Texas gave the Biden administration seven days to appeal his decision, which blocked the FDA's approval of the widely used abortion drug, throwing many women and medical providers into a state of uncertainty. Here with me now is the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Javier Becerra. Thank you so much for coming in this morning. So this Texas ruling banning uh, Mifepristone goes into effect on Friday unless a stay is issued. The question that women across America have right now is, will they have access to abortion medication after this week? Well, they certainly have access today, and we intend to do everything to make sure it's uh, available to them, not just in a week, but moving forward, period, because mifepristone is one of the safest and most effective medicines that we've seen over the last 20 years to help women with with their health care, especially abortion care. So uh, it is incumbent upon us as a country to make sure women have safe and effective medication uh, available. How are you going to do that? Well, we've already filed an appeal of this court's ruling. One judge in one court in one state turned upside down the FDA's approval process for safe and effective medications. We have to go to court and and seek an appeal. What happens if the ban is upheld? Will this drug disappear from the market market overnight? So that's, Dana, that's big speculation. Uh, First and foremost, when you turn upside down the entire FDA approval process, you're not talking about just mifepristone. You're talking about every kind of drug. You're talking about our vaccines. You're talking about insulin. You're talking about the new Alzheimer's drugs that may come on. If a judge decides to substitute his preference, his personal opinion, for that of scientists and medical professionals, what drug isn't subject to some kind of legal challenge? So we have to go to court. And for America's sake and for women's sake, we have to, uh, uh, we have to prevail in this. My next guest, Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, thinks that the FDA should just ignore the Texas judge's ruling. And, you know, she's not alone. I'm sure you've seen some legal experts argue the FDA does have broad discretion to simply choose not to enforce a ban. 
uh, and allow the drug to remain on the market. So yes or no, as the HHS secretary, do you want the FDA to enforce the Texas ruling if it is upheld in the short term? Uh, Yes or no, we want the courts to overturn this reckless decision. Yes or no, we want, yes, uh, that women continue to have access to a drug that's proven itself safe. Millions of of women have used this drug around around the world, more than 60 countries. But what if they don't act in the interim before you get to that point in the court? I got to believe that an appeals court, the Supreme Court, whatever court has to understand that this ruling by this one judge overturns not just access to mifepristone, but possibly any number of drugs. What if they don't? That's speculation that I think is not worth engaging in. But are are you taking it off the table that uh, you will recommend the FDA ignore a ban? Everything is on the table. The president said that way back when the Dobbs decision came out. Every option is on the table. So I want to ask about the Supreme Court because you obviously see this. You hope that you win an appeal. It will likely go to the Supreme Court. Do you agree with that? Good chance. So how worried are you that this court, conservative majority in the United States Supreme Court, will agree with the Texas judge? If the role of judges, of justices, is to apply the law to the facts and the evidence, the facts and the scientific evidence are that mifepristone is not just safe, but it's effective and it was properly approved. And so I don't care who the nine justices are on the Supreme Court or any court of appeal. They should be able to discern the difference between inserting their personal judgment and using the facts and evidence to make a legal ruling. Do you feel confident that could happen with this court? I do, but I'm not on the courts. And certainly I'm not on that court where that Texas judge decided to uh, turn upside down the whole process that FDA has used for years for many drugs. We are uh, now in a period of uncertainty, like this week. What's your message to women and to medical providers who want to get this drug and use this drug? This is not America. What you saw by that one judge in that one court in that one state, that's not America. Uh, America goes by the evidence. America does what's fair. America does what is transparent and we can show that what we do is for the right reasons. That's not America. Secretary of HHS, Javier Becerra, thank you so much Thanks. for coming in, especially on Easter. Happy, Happy Easter. Easter. Now let's speak with Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York. Thank you for joining us on this holiday Sunday. The abortion pill ruling doesn't take effect for seven days. You just heard me discussing that with Javier Becerra. The Biden administration is appealing it. Are you satisfied with what you just heard And what would it mean for women if approval for this pill is revoked nationwide? Well, you know, I do. um, While I commend the Biden administration for appealing the decision, uh, and I believe that Secretary Becerra has been doing a a phenomenal job in his role, I do think that when it comes to gaming out what the very real possibilities are in the coming days, weeks and months, This is not just about speculation, but this is about preparation. And the reality of our courts right now is very disturbing. This ruling is an extreme abuse of power. It is an extraordinary example of judicial overreach. The grounds of the ruling are 
complete are are just completely discredited and without grounds. And what we also learned this week is that a Supreme Court justice of this court has been receiving hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of gifts and expenses and having lifestyle subsidies by a billionaire who has been funding the, the same types of judicial organizations that appointed this judge in a partisan ruling in the first place. I'm going to get to that in a second. I just want to stick with with abortion uh, first. And, and the what you just heard uh, me ask the secretary about was something that you called on the Biden administration to do, which is just to simply ignore the court ruling. Um, that's a pretty... Uh, stunning position if you think about it in the in the abstract about the notion of just ignoring uh, a judge's position. So my question is, when this case is resolved by the Supreme Court, should the administration follow that decision if that decision ends up banning this abortion drug? Well, you know, I, I want to take a step back and, and dig into the grounds around ignoring this preliminary ruling as well. There is an extraordinary amount of precedent for this. There is a term known as agency non-acquiescence. Um, and this has been used in, in for folks saying this is a first, that this is a precedent setting. It is not. The Trump administration uh, also did this very thing, but also it has happened before. Uh, the idea of consistency and governance until uh, there is a, a higher court ruling is not an unprecedented thing to happen. In fact, when the Trump administration did it, it was arguably through a much, uh, you know, a, a, a very grave issue when it came to DACA. The Trump mm-hmm. administration was ordered to fully reinstate DACA, the DACA program, and they, in in com- in a complete defiance, uh, did not do that. They rely on the, the courts rely on the legitimacy of their rulings, and when they make a mockery of our system, a mockery of our democracy and a mockery of our law, as the as what we just saw happen in this Mifepristone uh, ruling, then I believe that the, that the executive branch, and we know that the executive branch has an enforcement discretion, especially should, should, in light of a contradicting ruling coming out of Washington. Should that apply if the Supreme Court upheld, upholds the Texas judge's decision? You know, I think one of the things that it, I think one of the things that we need to ex- examine is the the grounds of that ruling. But I do not believe that the courts have the authority to to have the authority over the FDA that they just asserted. And I do believe that it creates a crisis. Should the Supreme Court do that, it would essentially institute a national abortion ban because you have an extraordinary amount of states who have implemented surgical uh, surgical bans or bans after very early time periods. And then if you pair that with a mifepristone ban, mm-hmm. then we will essentially have a ban on abortion uh, with, I mean, there are certain workarounds. I will admit there would be certain workarounds, but we would have taken a very significant step towards a national abortion ban. When Once you ban medication abortion, which represents, or start banning medication abortion, which represents the overwhelming number of abortions in the United States, then we are in extremely dangerous territory. And I would urge the Supreme Court in its lawlessness that they are exhibiting right now already, their extraordinary conflict of interest. I mean, my hope would be that we do not get to that point. But once, if we do, 
I do believe that we must start to uh, start to push back on our system of checks and balances, which is designed to push back on should there be an example of judicial tyranny and judicial overreach. Let's talk uh, uh, more about the Supreme Court and what you mentioned before, which is that Justice Clarence Thomas, you want him to be impeached after a new ProPublica report this week revealed that he accepted luxury vacations from a Republican billionaire donor without disclosing them. Thomas is now defending himself. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, quote, early in my tenure at the court, I sought guidance from my colleagues and others in the judiciary and was advised that this sort of personal hospitality from close personal friends who did not have business before the court was reportable, was not reportable, rather. What is your response? I think that his own statement contradicts contradicts many of the facts on the ground and also raises in other ways even more serious questions. Later on in his statement, he stated that the reason and the rationale for this exemption was personal hospitality from an old friend. And he said himself in his statement, a friend of 25 years. Justice Thomas has been on the court for 30 years And so to say what he is admitting in his statement in an attempt to defend himself is that he began this relationship with a billionaire and receiving these sorts of gifts as after he was appointed to the Supreme Court of the United States. I think that that in and of itself indicates a very, very serious problem. And then on top of that, he is now implicating his colleagues. And I do believe that Chief Justice John Roberts must now come forward and, and state if he allows and is allowing this kind of very serious corruption to happen on, on this court. I think, you know, when it comes to, to Justice uh, Thomas's statement, when he's talking about his colleagues and when he's talking about who advised him to break the law, I think we need to know who those people are. Did the Justice Department investigate? I mean, I believe what we what we're seeing right now is is a breaking of the law and we have to examine what institutions I know that there are calls for um, I know that there are calls for chief justice to for the chief justice Roberts to initiate an investigation. I do not think that uh, this court any longer has the legitimacy, especially after the Supreme Court leak last year, which never came to a conclusion because the investigation itself that Chief Just- Justice Roberts uh, started back then, I believe, is is very discredited by naming a position uh, that has an inherent conflict of interest because it is employed by those justices to pursue that investigation. Mm-hmm. I believe that the and it is the House's responsibility to well, pursue that investigation in the form of impeachment. Well, let, let me ask you, I mean, you, you know full well that the House is now run by Republicans. How are you going to move what you're calling for, uh, articles of impeachment, through a House that is run by Republicans? You know, I think it's a it's a there is the question of the politics of what we are doing. And there's the question of the, the course and the accountability and the structures of what we are doing. I admit it is a, it is very difficult to see a path in a Republican party that refuses to hold itself accountable and in fact breaches the law itself. For all of their talk of a crime wave and Democrats talk, uh, Republicans talking about crime waves across the country, the crime wave is within the Republican party. It is within all of, of the, what we are seeing. We have, we have seen, uh, we are seeing breaking of the law by uh, conservative members of the court. We are seeing a, a, a 
former president of the United States just indicted uh, in the in recent days. I mean, we need to hold our systems accountable. And I do not believe that we should be refusing to do that for political reasons. I believe that we should pursue the course. And if it is Republicans that decide to protect those who are breaking the law, then they are the ones who then are responsible for that decision. But we should not be complicit in that. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democratic Congresswoman of New York, thank you so much and happy Easter. Thank you. And what did Trump supporters think of President former president's indictment. You might be surprised. We're going to hear from some of them coming up. And the Texas GOP censured my next guest in part for supporting a gun safety bill after the massacre in Uvalde, a town he represents in Congress. Welcome back to State of the Union. Two Tennessee Democrats may be headed back to the State House after Republicans expelled them over a gun rights protest on their House floor. My next guest broke with his own party, the GOP, after gun safety measure passed in Congress. He supported that. Of course, that came after a mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas, where 21 people were killed. He represents Uvalde, and he is here with me now. Texas Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. I want to talk about guns in, in, in a minute. But first, I do want to ask about that bombshell ruling from a federal judge in your home state of Texas revoking the FDA approval for the abortion pill, Mifeprestone. You are an outspoken opponent of abortion rights. But are you at all concerned that this, this sets a dangerous precedent that any single judge can simply overrule scientific agencies as they see fit? Uh, Dana, thank you for having me and happy Easter from San Antonio. A special shout out to a happy birthday to Jackie, my four year old. He's our Easter baby. Uh, you know, on this ruling, I have six children. I am a prolific pro-lifer, and I think it's important that we protect the sanctity of life. I believe in state rights here in Texas. You know, we have a heart bill, a heartbeat bill that was passed, and I think it's important that states uh, dictate their futures, and we have to have the courts uphold these. I mean, it's very dangerous when you have the, the, the administration, the Biden administration coming out and saying they, they may not uphold uh, a ruling uh, as a as an appropriator uh, on the House uh, on the House Republican side, I, I look at it. The the House Republicans have the power of the purse, and if the administration wants to not uh, not uh, lead this ruling, not live up to this ruling, then we're going to have a problem. And it may be a come a point where House Republicans on the appropriation side have to defund uh, FDA programs that don't make sense. You said that you want this to be states' rights, but isn't a federal judge? Uh, saying that on, on a national level that the, an, a pill cannot be uh, administered, the opposite of states' rights? Well, the states started this. The, the states had their ruling, and now the federal government is coming in and, and, and dictating theirs. I think it's important that we, we have to get back and allow our institutions to lead. We can't undermine them when we don't agree with things that are there, whether it's on the state level. Look, I'm from Texas. We don't we don't have marijuana here. It, you know, marijuana is in, in California and other places. If, if those are the kind of things that your community wants, then work it through your state, work it through the federal level. But we have to up, uphold our institutions. It's dangerous when we erode them. 
I, I want to move on, but I just want to point one important thing out, which is that mifeprestone isn't just used for abortion. It's also frequently prescribed for women experiencing a miscarriage. And by some estimates, as many as one million women miscarry every single year. So are they just on their own if this ruling is uphold, upheld? No, I think it's important that we take care of women. And we, we, it's important that we have real discussions on women's health care and, and get off the abortion, get off the, you know, the abortion conversation. Uh, women have a whole lot more other issues than just abortion. And let's have those real conversations. And let's talk about, you know, let's talk about the other things that are happening in, in this world. You know, I've got a picture of, of uh, uh, Emilia, uh, Emily, uh, Emilia and, uh, and Maria. They recently passed away three weeks ago do it to a smuggler in my district. What does that mean? That means there's all these other things happening in the world, especially in my district. You've, I've got a district that's turned upside down due to this border crisis. There's everyday people that are impacted uh, on this crisis to include the Tambungas. Well, both things can be true. Everyday people can be affected by, uh, by all of these issues facing Americans. Uh, speaking of that, I want to turn to guns. You represent Uvalde, where 19 children and two teachers were killed in that horrific school shooting almost a year ago. You were censured by your party in Texas after you voted for the bipartisan gun law in Congress. Now, in Tennessee, Republicans just expelled two Democratic lawmakers after they protested inaction on gun violence after the recent shooting there. Why does it seem like the Republican Party, your party, is responding to these school shootings by punishing people who are trying to address gun violence? What, what I'm seeing is both parties want to fight and they want to blame each other for everything that is wrong. Let, let's get away with the labels, done with the labels. Let's uh, get real problems and, and real solutions to real problems for people that are impacted every single day. When, it, when a school shooting happens, it doesn't kill Democrat kids or Republican kids. It kills our kids. How do we come together? I was proud to support the Safest Community Active. I, I would continue to do that. It, you know, uh, nobody's talking about this, but after the Safest Community Act was passed into law, there's been at least a dozen cases in in which a, a similar Uvalde type shooting was prevented. I think this, it's a start. We have to do more. One of the issues that I'm seeing is I'm having a problem with DOJ getting funding through these uh, stop, uh, stop school violence grants and cops grants. So what you see in Washington is oftentimes these people fight one another or they give well, pats on the back until that money reaches our schools. Like here in San Antonio, nobody is safe. These well, these uh, shootings continue to happen everywhere. It's not just Washington. As I mentioned, your own party in the state of Texas censured you because you supported this this bipartisan bill. Yeah, bipartisan. It, it's tough to work with with colleagues uh, in today's environment. You know, you you, you want to demonize one another. That doesn't help us move the ball forward. We have to look beyond that. You know, uh, going going back to kind of what's happening in Tennessee. You know, we have to have a, a, an area where people can can have nonviolent protests. I think that's important to democracy. I think it's important to our republic that we have those speak out be vocal in a nonviolent way. Once it turns into a violent aspect of it, we have to we have to cut that out. It has to be at a point where how do we come together? How do we bring this country together for the betterment of everybody to include keeping our kids safe in Con school? Congressman, let me ask you about what happened in New York this past week. The former president was charged with 34 counts of falsifying business records, allegedly to hide hush money payments to a porn star 
during the 2016 election. Since then, he's gone after the judge overseeing the case. He called on Republicans to defund the DOJ and FBI until they come to their senses. Do you support former President Trump's rhetoric and a call to defund federal law enforcement? President Trump is a U.S. citizen. He is a he is a former president and he is innocent until proven guilty in this country. And what you're seeing is so many people, because of their political affiliation, are, are demonizing one another. We have to get back. We got to get away from that. We got to get back to allowing things to take hold. Once again, I'll go back to it. Yes, it's like watching a novella, a, a Spanish soap opera. You can't look away. I get it. I want to know what Trump had for breakfast just as much as the next person. But back in my district, we have real problems. We have Emily and, and uh, uh, Emily and Maria that were killed. It, this is what this is what the border crisis looks like. Imagine you're a grandmother that picks up your seven-year-old daughter and takes her to a play date. On your way home, you get killed by a smuggler that is going a hundred miles an hour on Facebook living himself. Yeah. This is what my district oh, is horrible. feeling. So yes, it's important what Trump is doing and all these things, but how do we solve real problems? It, it's horrible, but I just want to say what, what the former president is saying is to defund federal law enforcement, given the picture you just hold out and the horrific story uh, you just talked about. I'm guessing you do not want federal law enforcement to be defunded. I want to see law enforcement empowered. I want to see law enforcement have greater training, have greater equipment and a closer bond with their communities. Congressman, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. And again, happy Easter. Thank Thank you. A group of diehard Trump supporters were asked what they'd like to tell the former president. What they said might surprise you. My panel is next. He needs to learn to pick his battles. Welcome back to State of the Union. This week, Donald Trump became the first former president indicted on criminal charges. So what does it mean for his biggest supporters? What do they think? Well, pollster Frank Luntz and Straight Arrow News convened a focus group of Trump backers this week. Take a listen to the advice they had for the former president. If Donald Trump were listening to this focus group right now, what would you tell him? Focus on what's going on in this country stop targeting DeSantis and start targeting Biden. That's the guy that you want out of office. I would tell Trump that his fellow Republicans are not his enemies. Do not go to the gutter. Avoid it. It turns off the voters. I would tell him that as president, he had great policies. He needs to learn to pick his battles. And we are back with our panel. Thank you for all for coming in. One and all, Senator Scott Brown, you worked for Donald Trump, you were his ambassador. Terrible, terrible job in New Zealand. (laughs) Uh, What's your reaction to the news this week? Well, obviously, there's a political analysis and then there's a legal analysis. I mean, you look at the anti-Trumpers, Romney, Bolton, uh, and then you look at some of your own. I just took a note on, you know, Ellie and then McCabe and uh, Van Jones basically saying that, uh, you know, it's it's inexplicable, inexplicable, the, the, the case that was actually brought. I have some concerns, as all the political analysis, uh, analysis folks do, about the statute of limitations, taking a state crime and turning it into a federal crime. So he's got some challenges there. But the political side of it, yeah, it gives him a bump. You can tell from the folks that are right there uh, we just heard. gives him a little bump, but can he sustain it? He's got to focus on 
people, the issues, not himself. Well, that, and that's exactly what we just heard from these Trump voters, this, this focus group that Frank Luntz d- did fascinating. I'm sure you have similar conversations as a pollster. Yeah, one thing that I think is so interesting about what these voters were saying in this focus group is that they don't want Donald Trump going after folks like Ron DeSantis. Mm-hmm. What's always been tough for any of these other Republicans in the field is the asymmetry of Donald Trump can take a swing at them and people go, well, that's just how Donald Trump is. He just likes to throw punches. But if you're anybody else and you criticize Trump, then suddenly everybody goes, oh, gosh, you can't. Why would you attack someone else within the own party? And so to hear them actually saying, no, I don't want you, Donald Trump, attacking other Republicans is interesting. It suggests maybe that asymmetry is less present. Maybe there is more room for someone like a DeSantis or a Nikki Haley or whatever to take a little bit, to needle Donald Trump a little bit more. Faz Shakir, thank you so much for coming. Welcome to the, to you, the State of the Union Roundtable. Uh, you worked for Bernie Sanders as a senior advisor. You know something about uh, fighting in a primary. Yeah, <laughs> there's, there's supposed to be good fights in primaries. I feel like, you know, I'm watching what's going on on the right, though, and you're feeling like a loss of moral conversation. You used to have moral conversation in politics. You have legal conversations. I appreciate that there's concerns over whether the case and the statute of limitations and other issues are at play, but what happened to moral leadership? Does anyone get concerned that a president who had an affair with a porn star while his wife just gave birth then paid her a bunch of money to try to win an election and turn off, you know, a potential issue that would have killed him in a presidential election? No, no, shrug. And I think at that point, you're like wondering, where is moral leadership, even from people on the right? We're, say, OK, I have concerns with legal issues. However, morally, this is just not accorded with my values. And what happened to that? What happened to that kind of conversation on the I right? Mean, that sailed a long time ago, right? I mean, ever since 2016, it was very clear. This is a different Republican Party, and they were interested in amassing power at all costs. And all that morality talk that we lived through in the 90s and in the 80s, it's, it, it's gone well, respectfully, uh, Bill Clinton, uh, Gary Hart, uh, let's not take the moral issue and, and all of a sudden think it's new. Uh, there's been indiscretions by previous president, uh, presidents. Uh, my concern is that you're opening up in a form of Pandora's box. This has never happened in our country's history. To take something that's a state issue, morph it after the statute of limitations passes into a federal issue. Uh, what happens if it's going to have a red state DA all of a sudden wants to take on one of yours? Uh, is that where we're going now? It's going to discourage people from running who are legitimately ready to serve this country, and it's going to create problems down the road. I mean, Trump led you into this degree of moral relativity, and I appreciate the points that, that uh, you know, his conduct might be just as bad as this person's conduct. Would I would argue, my own perspective, is that his conduct lives in a reign of its own. Listen, uh, people took that into account when they voted for him. They knew about all his indiscretions. They knew all about his problems. They compared and measured between him and Hillary, and they chose him. Let's... Let- God, I'm sorry. No, no. Moving forward, listen, you have a new cycle coming up. Does he have issues to overcome? Absolutely. But so does Joe Biden at 42 percent and all the things that, that are happening with him. One of the issues that we saw this week that still proves very powerful among voters is the issue of abortion, particularly yeah. in, in swing states. We saw what happened in Wisconsin. Now we have this ruling that we talked about earlier in the show. There was one judge in Texas. There was a split ruling, but the Texas judge said he was going to revoke the FDA approval of an abortion bill. Um, How much do you think this is going to, I mean, obviously the short term, this is the policy, but let's just talk politics here. 
How is this going to play into the political landscape? I mean, it's going to be huge. You've seen ever since last year in November and with Wisconsin, like voters are not interested in having government officials or judges take away their rights. This And let's talk about what this drug is, a drug that's been used for over two decades that is safer than Tylenol. This, this ruling has ramifications way beyond abortion. You are looking at the legitimacy of the FDA and how they approve medicine. Like, what, what's to say they're going to stop here? So what you're seeing is this hyper-radicalization of the judicial system that's playing out. And I think the politics of it are going to be bad for the Republican Party, but the policy of it should terrify everybody who cares about science and independence. What I'm seeing in a lot of my data is that for those voters who are pro-choice, they are much more fired up about the issue of abortion right now than voters who are pro-life. Frankly, in the data, you do not see pro-life voters saying, hey, we scored victories here, we feel momentum, we're going to vote on these issues. Instead, it is much more likely to have a negative effect on Republicans, at least in the short term at the ballot box. And I think that's one of the things that has been kind of, you know, opened up by the the ruling in Dobbs last summer is that it put the issue back in the forefront of the, the political conversation in a way that it wasn't prior to the ruling. But that is primarily a conversation that Democratic activists are happy to have, while Republicans, it's the third or fourth tier issue for many Republicans. I, I, I want to turn to the uh, situation in Tennessee these two lawmakers, state lawmakers, who Democrats who were uh, expelled because they protested on the floor of the legislature in favor of gun reform. Let's listen to what one of them said. We're being expelled, not because of a crime, not because of an ethics violation, but because we stood with these young people who are demanding that we act to end these school shootings. And rather than address the issue of banning assault weapons, my former colleagues, um, the Republican supermajority, are assaulting democracy. And that should change, you know, that should scare all of us across the nation. Can you respectfully disagree in today's society? And I think under, I would blame Trump again, is that that kind of politics of blood sport, that if you disagree with me, here comes the fire hose of venom, anger, vitriol, retribution, we're tearing you down, rather than to say, respectfully disagree. And I, I, I don't say that the left is immune from this at all, but I do think that the right discourse is one of saying, you disagree, here comes a punch in your head. Yeah, you listen, served on a, on respectfully, a state legislature. Respectfully, I know legislature. you work for Harry and Bernie. I respect them both. Uh, I've run 21 times. It's been a blood sport since I ran for assessor you know, almost 30 years ago. Uh, it's always been a blood sport. That being said, you have a democratic process where people voted in a democratic manner, and now it's being called undemocratic what they did. However, listen, it's Easter, Ramadan, and Passover right now. I don't disagree with you that we should find common ground because this is a very, very serious issue, what's going on with gun violence around this country. But you don't condone them being expelled, though, no, right? Let me finish. Uh, we have decorum rules as a state rep, state senator, U.S. senator, ambassador, military. You don't go on the House floor and start banging and taking over. I'm should, not sure hold that. on. Should, exactly. Exactly right. Should you have expelled them? No. I disagree with that. I think there's a way to find that common ground. Let them have their bully pulpit. You've raised them almost to martyr level now. And now, obviously, one's going to come back through the process. There will be a process. And I think, quite frankly, this helps uh, the Democrats in that state. But listen, the Democrat policies in that state are so far left that, you know, it, it really won't matter in Tennessee. I mean, look, I'm glad to hear that you think that expelling them was way too far. And if you look into the history of 
Tennessee in that state house. Like this actually isn't surprising that it happened because ever since Republicans have gotten a supermajority there, they have been using that hammer and that cudgel to, get out and vote. to stop get out dissent. And vote. Well, when yeah. you gerrymander the state within an inch of its life, yeah. it's hard to say get out and vote when you're splitting up Democratic districts to the point where it's, it's they don't all, have that power. The country, but mostly with Republicans, too, mostly re- with Republicans. We're going to have to leave it there. I'm sure this will continue in the green room, maybe on no, Twitter. It's all good. This thank is, you. Thank, this is great political discourse. It, it I, is. I love this, and it, thank you. It is. Thank you. Thank you all. And up next, she's one of the most popular people in Washington, a day in the life of Ukraine's ambassador to the U.S., the latest in my series, Badass Women of Washington. In Ukraine, forces are preparing for a spring offensive. Here in Washington, Ukrainian Ambassador Oksana Markarova is fighting to keep resources flowing to her country. Here's my latest installment in the series Badass Women of Washington. Seven-year-old Carolina at the Ukraine house in D.C. She came to the U.S. for medical treatment. This little girl lost both her legs last fall from a Russian attack. Visits like these are part of the job for Ukraine's ambassador to the United States, Oksana Markarova. You were recently asked about your job and you said, I thought I was going back to a comfortable life in private business when the president asked me to serve as ambassador to the United States. Yes, comfortable is not... The word to describe, of course, <laughs> uh, this. Markarova became ambassador two years ago this month. She wasn't even there a year when Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine on February 24th, 2022. We were preparing for it. We knew that the intent to attack us was there. But you never completely believe until, unfortunately, something horrific like war happens. I would wake up every morning and think, was that a bad dream? Mm. But we work literally 24-7. Your background is in finance. When you came to the United States as ambassador, your goal was about business and about getting investment in Ukraine. I definitely didn't have all the knowledge about all the military capabilities. Now I know them by names, codes, you know, and and everything else. But uh, yes, I became a wartime ambassador. Not something I was preparing myself for, but I don't think you can ever be really prepared for it. But I think my previous finance experience uh, uh, is actually very useful. How? A lot of help that we have been receiving from the U.S., from President Biden, Congress on a strong bipartisan basis, is about... Uh, security assistance, but also budget assistance. On most days, she's working outside the embassy, shuttling between various government agencies around Washington. It's very so important for, for the ambassador to to be the voice of Ukraine here. We are fortunate to have such a strong bipartisan support. We have champions, I wouldn't even say champions of Ukraine, champions of democracy. On this vote, the yeas are 368, the nays are 57. Helping Ukraine had been a rare corner of bipartisanship in Congress. But now the new House Republican majority is divided on it, as is the GOP field of presidential hopefuls. The fastest path to peace is to help Ukraine win the war. I care more about securing our own border in the United States uh, than I do about the Russia-Ukraine border. Is there concern that the bipartisan support that has been extraordinary will weaken as Ukraine becomes a political issue internally here? 
I really hope it will not weaken. Do we have to inform American people more? Of course. Is any support that any country and Ukraine right now has in the U.S. is promised for the years to come? Definitely not. It's a task for us to keep informing people, telling people, sharing the, the, the truth with them. The International Criminal Court has issued two warrants of arrest. Last month, the ICC brought war crime charges against Putin, accusing him of illegally deporting Ukrainian children to Russia, the first formal charges since he invaded Ukraine. They have been kidnapped, deporting them to Russian Federation and forcefully putting them either through this horrific re-educational camps, schools, or putting them into strangers' families. It's uh, a criminal act which is punishable by uh, the most harsh sentences. These are all the ambassadors, previous ambassadors before me. Man, 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 man. She is the first female Ukrainian ambassador to the U.S. You've said that in some ways women are better suited as diplomats and especially as ambassadors. Um, yes, because I think women are uh, peacemakers and peacekeepers. I think women are always trying to forge partnerships. She says her husband is a huge source of support. Could you do this job without a partner who, who gets it? It would be much more difficult. The expectations society has from women are still, I think, higher. How so? Uh, the majority of people still expect that, you know, it's women that has to has to take care of children. It does take a certain kind of man to be comfortable with a <clears throat> wife who is as high profile and as important as you are. Well, strong men, my husband is definitely one of them, I don't think are intimidated by strong women. <laughs> the mother of four has two school-aged children who live with her in Washington. They understand what this fight is about. Mm -hmm. Uh, they had to probably grow up a little bit faster during this year. and um, But most Ukrainian children did. Yes. It's a source of inspiration for me. I learn a lot from my kids. Right in yes. the middle of Georgetown. Ukraine's embassy sits in the heart of Georgetown, in a historic building that was once home to Revolutionary War General Forrest. President George Washington visited this very room. This is the room where Washington and others drew the outlines of what became D.C., America's capital. We're very proud, especially now when we fight for our independence, to own a building that uh, has seen people who fought for your independence. is remarkable. We'll be right back. We want to wish you and your family a very happy Easter, a joyous Passover, and a Ramadan Mubarak. Fareed Zakaria picks it up next. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.